The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Um, this morning's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 7. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tim. Uh, And for the second time, thank you for the tone of respect and honor and reverence uh, with which you read uh, that scripture. I said to the early service, bears repeating that uh, when you hear the ministry of Christ from the cross portrayed as it is in places like Isaiah 53, perhaps the most appropriate thing to do would be to take your shoes off uh, because you're on holy ground and fall on your face. Uh, This is a sacred text and it portrays for us, it doesn't just tell us, it portrays for us why Jesus Christ came. Why he came. So, I'd like to start with uh, uh, the first Jackson Pollock uh, piece of art that I ever laid eyes on, and I'd love to have the slide put up there for you. It's called Number 1A, 1948, and I went to a, an art museum uh, with an artist friend, and he wanted to show me this, this artist that, that, that he likes a lot, and I looked at that, and I, I have to admit um, I wasn't very impressed, and I thought to myself, how many tens of millions of dollars did this painting sell for the last time it sold? And you're telling me that uh, this guy laid a canvas on the floor and just took a brush and twirled uh, paint over the canvas, and, and voila, it's, it's worth all those tens of millions of dollars? I could do that. And, and my artist friend said to me, okay, I'm going to leave the room Uh, to recompose myself after having to hear you say that. And as I'm recomposing myself, I want to invite you to get one foot away from that painting and just stare at it and try to notice details and do it for a good long while. And I said, okay, I'll try. And it blew me away. Um, I'm I'm closer to the painting, I'm doing what he told me to do, and before long, because I had some biographical material on the artist, he was a tortured soul, uh, created in the image of God, um, a lot like Mark Rothko, another, another artist, there was a play about Rothko here that, that a friend of mine, artist in the community, went and saw a couple of years ago, um, a few years ago actually, but these are tortured souls who you know who we attribute their creativity and their genius to the tortured nature of their souls there's something about 
death that breeds resurrection. Uh, It's as if it's written into the fabric of the universe. And what I saw when I looked closely and received from this painting, instead of standing in judgment over it, was a Jackson Pollock self-portrait this painting was. It portrays the wreckage and it portrays the beauty and the glory all at once. It's a great portrait of a human being. So second slide, another piece of art, a little bit less abstract and wonderful. This one is called Dad 2006 by Ellie Sauls. I gave it the title, um, but she, she handed this to me one day when she was really young. She was four years old. And I said, oh, it's beautiful. What is it? And she says, it's you, Dad. It's you. And, and, and of course, uh, it's easy to dismiss, oh, how cute. But then you look at it a little bit closer and you think, oh, you're actually right. I'm a, a mess of many colors. Uh, you're right. That's a, a terrific portrayal of your father. So Isaiah 53 is not unlike a Jackson Pollock painting. You look at it on the surface and you say, I mean, not only is it unimpressive, it's kind of disgusting. And you call that beautiful, and, and, and then you get close to it. Like somebody who, who's on the inside, who's able to see it from the inside, from, from the Creator's perspective, says, I'm going to leave the room, recompose myself while you stare and receive and see if you might be transformed. This is not only Isaiah the artist. You know, you know Isaiah is one of the greatest poets that ever lived, right? He's not just a prophet. He's, he wrote a masterpiece, and this is part of his masterpiece. This is as if it's an artist's portrayal of God. But it's also God's own self-portrait. Verse 4 says that this is what God chose in terms of how to portray himself to the world. We esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted, oppressed, slaughtered, and sheared. And then verse 2, God wanted it to come across this way as well. There was no beauty that we should desire him. And yet there's a truth beneath the surface if you get close enough and if, if you get intimate enough with it, you see that there's more there than what meets the eye. So that there's also dripping on the ground at the cross of Christ, right? You catch the metaphor? Except it's not paint, it's blood. And it's in that drip that you see that the one dripping it and from whom it is dripping is not only a worthy object of worship, but a, a revered masterpiece in his own right. So verse 13 in chapter 52, it's sort of a, a, a prelude. It says, my servant shall act wisely. Now, that, that anytime you see the word wisdom or wise or wisely in the Bible, pay close attention because what the Scripture is saying is, I know you don't see this for what it is. But you need to understand that if you are able to see everything that God sees, feel everything God feels, perceive everything God perceives, know everything God knows, this would be breathtaking to you. The Mona Lisa would look like thrift shop material if you knew what it was that you were beholding and who you were beholding. Because the closer you get, 
the more you will see his beauty and the marring of his beauty, his greatness in the diminishing of his greatness, and his power in the stripping of his power. So, so I want to give you three ways of looking at what's in front of you. A mirror, a window, and a doorway. So we'll start with the mirror. So, so here's, here's something that may be hard to swallow or, or something that maybe you embraced as truth a long time ago because you're an honest person. The way that Jesus is portrayed on the outside on the cross, gruesome, almost so grotesque that you don't want to look at him, is a vivid portrayal of what you are on the inside. What he looks on the outside is what you are on the inside. And what I am on the inside, it's a gruesome optic. But the artist, the poet Isaiah, connects it to us. Surely he has borne our griefs and sorrows. He was pierced and crushed for our transgressions and our iniquities. What you see in Jesus visibly is what God sees when he looks at our hearts. Sin, sorrow, wreckage. It is that bad. You know, Jack Miller, who's a pastor and former seminary professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where David Filson also teaches on a regular basis, became famous for the phrase, cheer up because you are worse than you think. It's an invitation to transparency the kind that we see even in Isaiah in chapter 6 when he sees a picture of the holiness and grandeur of the Lord. He says, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and for a prophet to call curses down on his lips is like a sprinter calling curses down on her legs or, or a neurosurgeon calling curses down on his fingers. It's to take the very best, most skilled and reputable part of you and to acknowledge that in comparison to the grandeur of God, even the best part of me is dust. Dust. Even at our best, we are a mix of pure and contaminated motives. And the cross on the outside is a picture of us on the inside. Why would I say that? Well, because as the Scriptures themselves attest, while we look at outward appearance and judge by outward appearance, God looks at the heart. He judges on the basis of what's on the inside, not on what's on the outside. And so Sermon on the, on the Mount, for example, we did a whole series on this a couple of years ago. It's basically Jesus's uh, three-chapter interpretation of the Ten Commandments. And, and he says, look, nobody's off the hook on things that, that most people think they're off the hook on. Let's take adultery, for example. Oh, I've never committed adultery. I'm not like those adulterers. But Jesus says, not so fast. Have you ever lusted in your heart? 
then you have already committed adultery in your heart. Well, I'm at least not like those murderers and those serial killers and, 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 and those genocidal maniacs that we read about in the history, but I'm not like that. Well, if you've harbored bitterness and resentment, if you participated in gossip and slander, you've murdered in your heart, you've murdered with your tongue, you may have not assassinated a body, but you assassinate character every day, all day long in your speech. And then we would say, well, at least I'm a person of prayer, and and I'm a generous person. And Jesus says, look, anyone who takes their religion and turns it into theater in order to impress other people by, by virtue of how holy and prayerful and virtuous and how much of a Bible reader you are and how much of a churchgoer you are, You've already received your reward if you in any way, shape, or form try to turn your religion into theater so that people will look at you and say, oh, what a good person, what a superior person, what a virtuous person. Here we have Jesus Christ agreeing with Nietzsche. We have, we have God agreeing with the one who said God is dead because Nietzsche said, Nietzsche said that the human heart is so twisted that we even do altruistic things in order to get people to notice us, in order to gain reputation, and through the gaining of reputation to gain power. Darwinian to the core. What Isaiah is showing us is that what we think is a small sin is actually a seismic sin. Every heart is like a tiny little seed. And you think, oh, that's so small, that's so insignificant. A little bit of lust, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of slander, a little bit of mischaracterization, a little bit of internal outrage. Every seed by itself has an entire forest inside it. All it needs is certain conditions in order for it to combust and become a tree, which becomes more seeds, which becomes more trees, which becomes an entire forest. You get the, you get the point. It is this bad. Unconvinced? Then, then, I, then I dare you to do this. If you think that you've got a pure heart, take every thought that you've, you've had in the past week. Write it down unfiltered in an essay and publish it on the internet. (laughs) Just this past week. You don't have to be a Christian to know this stuff is true. You don't have to believe anything in the Bible to know your own heart. The reason why you are so defensive and the reason why you gossip and point the finger elsewhere is because you know you're even worse than the worst person says you are. What we see on the cross is as much a mirror as it is biography of how God wants to be understood and known. But here's something that the cross provides for us in this, a resource for brutal honesty. You know, Jack Miller, who I mentioned the other, the, the, a moment ago, who said, you know, cheer up, you're worse than you think. When he receives criticism, even unfair criticism, or, well, received. He doesn't receive criticism anymore because he's in heaven. But, but when he received it, even, even when it was unfair, he would look at his critic most often and say, ah, oh, you don't know the half of it. Like the stuff you know or the stuff you think you know, or even the false portrayals, so much better than what's really going on 
in here. That's why Paul, at the peak of his own virtue, could call himself the chief of sinners and be very open about his former blasphemy, persecution, and violence. It's why Jonah can, can, can write the book of Jonah and publish it for the world to see and to experience for generations, even though in the book of Jonah he's telling on himself about how he was entitled and how he loved the grace and mercy of God for himself, but he despised the idea that the grace and mercy of God could be for them, the Ninevites. Isaiah himself Chapter 64 includes himself in this statement. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like a wind take us away. Why look at the mirror when you have the option to look away? And yet he he just looks straight into the mirror. He doesn't break eye contact with the mirror. He sees the gruesomeness of his own unclean lips and his own unclean heart and his own pretense and his own will to power. He sees it. And he doesn't break eye contact. But what, en- what enables this? What empowers this? He understands that honesty, raw, brutal honesty about the real darkness of his own heart and the real darkness of my heart and the real darkness of yours is a gateway to be able not only to think but to feel the lyrics, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It's a mirror, but it's also a window As we look at Isaiah 53 and see also an image of ourselves, we also are invited to look through Isaiah 53 to see the other side, which is a willing scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is. It's somebody who takes the blame for something they're not responsible for in order to deflect blame from those who are responsible for it. That's what a scapegoat is. And people scapegoat other people all the time in order to not deal with their own stuff. It's a trick that we play on our own hearts. It's a way that we manipulate our own thoughts about ourselves and somebody else. We are so much more willing to tear somebody else down in order to prop ourselves up. You know, one commentary I read... Said it, said it this way, we live with a deep unease about ourselves. In our politicians, for example, we demand an honest reckoning, but do we require the same unsparing honesty of ourselves? We want so desperately for others to bear our guilt for us, so we dump it on them. Politicians, executives, actors, famous people, wealthy people, leaders, we dump on them so we can tell ourselves, I'm okay. It's not my fault. The way, reason why I'm, I am this way is because, right? So somebody else tells a lie. Oh, they're a liar. Somebody else gossip. Oh, they're a gossip. But if I lie, if I gossip, it's complicated. It's complicated. 
It's what people have recently begun to call failure porn. Failure porn. The need to tear other people down, to see other people fail, to see other people be shamed, shunned, and canceled so that we can tell to our own fragile, corrupted, contaminated, putrid, contributing hearts, you're not a contributor. This doesn't apply to you. You're better than that. You're better than them. You're superior. Scapegoating. What are the alternatives? I mean, we don't want to bear our own guilt because there are really only two ways to to carry our own guilt and shame. One is through self-sabotage, promiscuity, addiction, self-loathing, self-harm. We self-sabotage in order to deal with shame and guilt. In other words, we resort to the strategy of hating ourselves. Okay, I'm just going to lean into it. I'm just going to own it. And then the other alternative, as we try to bear our own guilt, is the path of success and achievement, where we try to overcome our guilt and shame through things like success and accumulation and accolades. And, and, and we know what kind of a dead-end street that is when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, where, where the, this wealthy, rich, powerful man at the end of his life says, it's all vapor. It's like trying to hold on to smoke. It just... If it, it just ekes out uh, through your fingertips and, and evaporates in the air. Then the final way to deal with your own guilt and shame is to release it to Jesus. And that's the only alternative that leads to sanity and to health and flourishing and wholeness. Release it to Jesus by owning it for what it is. It's as bad as Scripture says it is. And He is as good as Scripture says He is. And as forgiving and kind and self-donating as Scripture says He is. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The willing scapegoat. So if you've gotten your hands on this uh, nifty little uh, Advent devotional that, that, um, that our uh, adult ministry and discipleship folks have put together. That would be Lee Eric Fesco and Melanie Rayner especially, but a lot of people contributed to putting this thing together. Still have them available for free for anyone who wants to take one from the lobby. Wouldn't take you long to catch up, but I was especially moved uh, by one of the uh, devotionals this past week where they focused on Leviticus chapter 16. And yes, I did say Leviticus. I put Leviticus and encouragement in the same sentence. All Scripture comes from and points back to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the King of encouragement. In Leviticus 16, it talks about how under the Old Covenant, one time a year, the high priest of Israel would go into the most holy place, slaughter a lamb, and, and, and take the blood and, and, and put it on the head of a goat, and then would send that goat out into the wilderness as the priest confessed the sins of Israel as well as his own sins over that goat, put it symbolically on the head of that goat, sent the goat out into the wilderness to the wolves. It was a symbolic foreshadowing of 
of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I quote from this nifty devotional, It's Jesus who became the priest who receives our confession, who became the sacrifice for our sins, who became the scapegoat, who bears the burden for all the wrong done to us and all the wrong done by us. Theologians call it the substitutionary atonement. Now, I'll get theological, but I'll I'll try to put it into pedestrian terms that, that connects with all of us. God does not treat us as our sins deserve because God instead treated Jesus as our sins deserve. God does not treat us as our sins deserve because God treated Jesus as our sins deserve. And some find that objectionable. John Stott put it this way, sin is when we substitute ourselves for God. Salvation is when God substitutes himself for us. Some find that objectionable, the thought that God the Father would punish God the Son. Some in the, you could call it progressive Christian world, the ex-evangelical world, the deconstructing world. We're going to do a whole forum on deconstruction and the whole dynamic that exists, uh, you know, today in January. But that world that wants to deconstruct sacred doctrines and sacred truths like this in favor of something that feels better to us. Oh, God is just a God of love. He just forgives, and the the wrong just evaporates into the atmosphere. Well, tell that to somebody who's had their child murdered. Tell that to somebody who's been assaulted. Oh, it just evaporates. No, somebody pays a price when forgiveness happens. Always. A fool rejects what Scripture calls wisdom and then suggests an alternative. But Isaiah says, God substituting himself for us is wise action. It's also God's action. Verse 4, this is Scripture. I'm a charlatan if I'm not willing to say these things to you, but I will say the cozy things that make you feel good, but I'm not willing to say these things to you. I would be a poser if if I weren't preaching to you everything that it says. And here's part of everything right here. Verse 4, God the Son is smitten by God the Father. In verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is God's word. But lest we think that Jesus was a passive, helpless, unwilling victim, lest we think that this is an occasion to allege God the father of cosmic child abuse, as some have said. It says in verse 7 that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The, the, the one who had the power to create everything with his speech. He said, let it be, and there was. The Bible says he was there at creation. It says that he 
is the creator. Jesus is the creator. And yet he did not retaliate. He did not stand up for himself. He did not exert the power that he had to call fire down on everybody who was doing this to him. Here's what it says later in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, No one takes my life from me, lest you think I'm some kind of helpless victim. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, the word of the Lord. Irrefutable, unchangeable. Oscar Schindler put it this way. Power is when we have every justification to kill and we don't. Jesus, we could say that the greatest exertion of power in the history of the world was when Jesus came up from the dead. A very close rival, if not an equal, to the power of the resurrection was the power of restraint that Jesus exercised on, exercised on the cross because he had every justification to destroy us. And instead, he subjected himself to destruction as our scapegoat. He's the only one that I can think of in the history of the world who said, I want to be your scapegoat. I'll be, your, I'll be the scapegoat. You know, I, the only thing I remember about college is I don't remember anything about college. Except for one acronym given to me by a macroeconomics professor named Dr. Sanford. Tinstoffel. There is no such thing as a free lunch. If you get it for free, it means somebody else paid for it. Just think of the meat. Somebody had to die in order for you to eat that piece of chicken or that burger. Somebody had to pay for the assembly lines and you know, everything else that, that, that got that food to you. Somebody had to pay. Likewise, there's no such thing as free forgiveness. The pain is just transferred. It's transferred and absorbed elsewhere. Injury doesn't just disappear like smoke in the wind. Injury has to be accounted for because it's woven into the fabric of the universe. First John 1 John 1.9 says, it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to cleanse us of all of our sins. It says he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins and unrighteousness. Well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus absorbed the justice that was due to us, but it would be unjust for God to continue and punish us because the payment has already been made. An underpayment is unjust. An overpayment would be unjust. Jesus is the perfect payment for the sins of the world. He looks down to the, the universe as he's dripping on the ground, you know, the earth as his canvas, as if he's saying to us, this is going to hurt me a hell of a lot more than it's going to hurt you. But it's what I came for. It's a window, finally a doorway. Very quickly, a doorway to cleansing. Verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, that brought us cleansing, that made purity out of our filth. 
You know, whenever I do yard work on a dry day, there's this combination, sorry for the image, there's this combination that happens of my sweat and the dust and the pollen that kicks up when I'm cutting the grass and working in the weeds and everything. And so I always, I'll come in after doing yard work and, and, I'll, and I'll say to Patty, uh, who also does a ton of yard work but never does this to me, but I'll go in just, just, to, just to mess with her and I'll say, hey, come on, big hug, big hug. And she'll be like, no, no, uh, you know, kind of pushing me away. Why would she do that? Because if a contaminated person comes in and puts, puts his arm around a clean person, both of them are contaminated. But it works differently than with Jesus. If I, if I come to Jesus with, with all the contamination, not only that's on me, that, that, but that's in me, and, and I lean in for an embrace, he doesn't, he doesn't stiff arm me. He comes in and leans in. As the clean, pure, ineffable one, he leans in and becomes contaminated himself. But the difference is I walk away clean. I walk away clean. Cleansing. Which then breeds emotional freedom. If you're in the music industry, you you probably know who Al Andrews is. Al does a lot of great work with um, with artists on Music Row, especially just in the, the area of emotional health and, and such. And we had Al speak to a few hundred of, of our Christ Pres men about four or five years ago. And, and as he's sharing about the gospel, he paints an image uh, of him giving a bath to his little grandson. And, you know, they, they do all the soap and the shampoo and the Wash, washes out into the water, and, and Al turns around, and then he turns back, and, and there his grandson is. He stood up in the tub, just buck naked with his hands in the sky, and, and his grandson said, yes! What if that was our response? Not literally. But what if that was our response in our demeanor? having been cleansed with the baptismal waters of Christ, having, having come and leaned into him with all of our contamination, and then he walks away contaminated as the scapegoat into the wilderness to the wolves, and we walk away clean. There's a sobriety and a joy that that calls for. Jack Miller's sentence was completed this way. It started, cheer up because you're worse than you think. But you're also more infinitely loved by God than you ever dared to hope. And the cross demonstrates both of those truths together. Which finally, the doorway brings us to a blessed fundamentalism. Don't leave. You know, some words need to be discarded. Some words need to be redeemed. You know, I was in a conversation in New York City where... um, Tim and Kathy Keller, you know, Tim's a mentor, Kathy's his wife, um, were in conversation and somebody brought up the thought that the, the biggest problem in the world is fundamentalists, fundamentalists who run airplanes through buildings, you, know, you got the whole 9-11 memory, uh, you know, they're still fresh, uh, uh, fundamentalists who, um, you know, who initiate genocide in the name of God against certain people groups or racism towards certain people groups, presumably in the name of God, uh, or fundamentalists who tarnish the reputation of, of good-hearted Christians everywhere by getting behind a microphone and grossly misrepresenting the Spirit of Christ to the whole world. 
through judgment and pointing fingers and those kinds. The problem with the world is fundamentalism. And Kathy quietly said this. She says, well, doesn't it depend on what your fundamentals are? Because if you've got good and pure and righteous fundamentals, don't you think that fundamentalism could actually be a beautiful thing? It all depends on what the fundamentals are. And she says, take me, for instance. I've never met. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I've never met an Amish terrorist. Have you? And she says, because the fundamentals for, for the Amish are built around God dying on the cross to love and save his enemies, and then to go and do likewise. And not long after that, Tim, her husband, also a preacher, told a story about something that happened in 2006 in Pennsylvania where a young man somewhere in his 30s walked into an Amish schoolhouse and took 10 hostages from that schoolhouse, all children ages 7 to 13, shot all of them, five of the children died, and then he turned the gun on himself. And within, amidst their grief, which was very real grief, as you might imagine, the Amish took it upon themselves to go visit the shooter's parents to tell them, we want you to know that because Jesus Christ has forgiven us, we are forgiving your son. And we forgive you of any guilt or shame that you may feel over what he's done for us because we know these coming days are going to be excruciating for you as well. You not only lost your son, but you lost him in this way. And that's a great burden to bear. And then three days later, the shooter's funeral happens, and he had a wife and three children surviving him. And the Amish community did the same thing, said the same things to the wife and also the children. Fifty percent of the people who were at this man's funeral were from the Amish community. There's a book that was written about it by a sociologist called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. One of the conclusions that this sociologist made was that there are two things that Christianity produced for the Amish people that American society has never been able to produce. The ability to forgive completely and without scapegoating and the ability to turn toward God in tragedy instead of turning away from God in tragedy. That's something that the sociologists could not explain. But the Amish would say, it's our fundamental. Our fundamental is a father who lost a child to excruciating, unjust violence, terrible violence, and a child who bore our griefs and bore our transgressions. I realize stories like this are very hard to swallow, unimaginable for me as a father. And yet this is the power of Christ in Christ's people, which brings us to the table of nourishment in such things, the body and the blood of Christ given for the people of God. Let's pray together.